Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Many are using the term epidemic to describe the current problem of drug and or alcohol abuse in the United States. Virtually everyone we know has been negatively impacted by this problem. Yet for so many that are experiencing the devastating effects of drug and or alcohol abuse, they don't know who to turn to for help. Who can we trust to care for our loved ones? Transformations Treatment Center is one of the most respected, ethical, and professional drug and alcohol treatment centers in the world with a strong focus on individualized care, offering a wide range of holistic, specialized, and medically supervised treatment programs. We know that many of you have questions. Take the time to call Transformations Treatment Center for the answers. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Or go online to transformationstreatment.center. Calling us from Virginia, actually calling from an area where I grew up and spent most of my childhood. Meriwether Ball is joining us on the Law Enforcement Today show. Meriwether, thanks for being a guest on the show. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure and honor and privilege to have you here. And for those folks, before we get to know Meriwether, she is a historian. She's a writer. She's not a law enforcement officer, but she's got a compelling story to tell about her being a victim of extreme crime. But before we do that, Meriwether, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. You're a historian and you're a writer and you have a blog. That's right. I was um, a Navy veteran, a journalist in the Navy, JO3 in the service, and uh, third class video. And in this time, I learned a lot about writing about people in the military, and it was very interesting to me. Before that, I had been associated press correspondent and then after that I was an associated press correspondent but I saw things completely differently after I had been in the Navy and learned about military journalists and I saw members of the community differently so in 2002 I launched Core Stories which is a nonprofit online publication telling feature news stories about Marines and their supporters and really the only criteria is, is that they're typically not famous. They're people who are doing very cool things in that community. But they've not had any idea. They've not had any, they're unsung. Um, and so that's how it started. And then I got interested in um, the war started. And then I got interested in how some of these people came to receive very high medals, maybe cross, Congressional Medal of Honor. And I learned that they're just the same people. They're the same people who are pumping your gas yeah. and working at Lowe's and, and are police officers and firefighters when they're not Marine or reservists. That's one thing that I say all the time is, well, you can go to the grocery store and have no idea that you're walking right next to someone who is a heavily decorated combat veteran. That's a real walking, talking hero. It's true. 
It's really true. And the thing with law enforcement, like you think you could get pulled over for going five miles over the speed limit, but you're not being pulled over by an ordinary person or law enforcement officer on the weekends or, or one weekend a month. They're serving in a unit and they have done extraordinary things, but you don't know that right. because they're a police officer. Yeah. So you encounter these people all the time. And I found that, I find fascinating. And um, so then I did some research on it, and the, the same thing just happened over and over and over again. They're just, in this war and every war in Marine Corps history, all of these people came from the most ordinary beginnings. And um, so that then I wrote um, Great Marines of Virginia. In this time, I learned that another Virginian, Jesse Puller, and I are very different cousins, but in... Virginia history, this is not uh, so uncommon. People from Virginia uh, sometimes have many, many generations of their family there and are actually related. His daughter, Virginia Puller, said to me, I'm, I'm cousins with half the state of Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then I wrote a book about his, um, we shared the, the same church of Virginia, Episcopal Church, it's very common to the families of Virginia. And um, he was a very devout Christian, and I found that interesting. So I wrote Polar Chronicle. And um, where, and so where can people get more information about your books and your, your blog, uh, Core Stories? Um, certainly they could visit corestories.com, C-O-R-P-S-S-C-O-R-I-E-S. But also they could just go to meriwetherball.com, just like it sounds, no A's. <laughs> and um, and they're everything that you can find, the book series and also Core Stories. One of the fascinating things, I grew up, I was a transplant. My dad was career Navy. And by the way, thank you for your service in the military. And we got, leaving Rota, Spain, we wound up going to Norfolk, Virginia. And all the different installations there, he wound up finishing his career there. And then we went to Maryland after that. But that place will always be home to me. Uh, the Hampton Roads area of Virginia will always be home. And we met so many people from so many different walks of life and different countries that were involved with the Navy or the Marine Corps. So people would think that part of the United States is isolated. It's not because you've got people literally from all over the world living, residing, and working there. It's true. And it's a very, you know, of course, because of this, it's a very military-friendly community that Hampton Roads is, or co- anywhere in coastal Virginia is, but it's also um, attracts a lot of people to retirement because of the climate. So just like people come from all over the world to serve and work, not only the largest Navy base in the world is here, but also NATO headquarters are here, and a lot of joint forces stuff happens here. So they retire here, and their children grow up here, and then their children stay here. So it is a very diverse community with really great weather. <laughs> and some great people. I, I was very lucky. Uh, when I grew up there, it was the Vietnam era. And I went to school with mm-hmm. a lot of youngsters whose parents, whose dads were POWs in Hanoi. And it was, we, that's all we knew. And mm-hmm. um, it has had a, I think for the positive, a profound effect on me growing up being shaped by all these individuals and their stories. And there's so many great stories. And one of the things that people don't really understand is there is a huge kinship, a family 
almost, for lack of better words, relationship between police and, and military, partly because we're a paramilitary organization. Number two, so many of our ranks are veterans. And when I was brought up in police work, I was trained by a lot of Vietnam veterans and a very few commanders that were Korean War veterans. And these men, they really understood the concept of what we now call community policing because that was every day. And they were I, heroic. They were they were real heroic people, but they were down to earth. That was the other thing about them. It's not. I'll I'll be honest with you, Mary. Weather, when I see people getting a Congressional Medal of Honor, I'm I'm awestruck. And then you hear mm-hmm. them afterwards talking in a normal setting, and they're like normal everyday folks. Of course they are. One of the questions I get all the time is, "How can I show my support for law enforcement?" Well. We're all busy. You probably can't go to a protest march. You probably can't go pick it somewhere. But there's something very simple you can do with Facebook. When you see a post that you agree with, that you like, share it to your page. It's just that simple. Think of it this way. Facebook has about 2 billion registered users worldwide. So you can make a difference. And one of the best places to find great posts about law enforcement our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. And when you see posts that you like, you agree with, especially episodes of the radio show and podcast, be sure to share it on your social media. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Meriwether Ball. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Epidemic. America's public health crisis. These are all terms that describe the current problem of drug and alcohol abuse in the United States. Countless lives are lost, and heartbroken families are too many to count. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to saving lives. Call 888-991-9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has many acclaimed treatment programs offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Back to the Law Enforcement Today show. Our special guest is Mary Weatherball. Get more details about her, her stories, her writing, meriwetherball.com. Meriwether, we talked, and one of the things you brought up that really hit home to me from my police experiences that you went through an all too common crime and it's the domestic violence is out of control has been out of control for a long time and and one of the things that we always say of policing and you watch like investigation discovery channel where it's about murder the first things they look at are people close to you because that's more than likely who's going to commit a violent crime against you it's someone you know someone you love and unfortunately that's something you went through it is it is i um survived a murder suicide attempt by my husband 
with our child, our 18-month-old child, um, back in 1996 in Boston. Now, it's a long time ago, but some aspects of it are so timeless. The experience of that and then sort of the, the before and after of it. And that is that the truth is I saw it coming. You know, I saw that the relationship was becoming more and more um, scary to me. And I just couldn't keep up with his thinking and his uh, demands. I just couldn't bring myself to leave. I, could, I was terrified. I would have done anything to not leave because I didn't know how I would ever keep away from him, I think is the bottom line. But what he decided to do was, um, he said it was brought by finances, which is an excuse for violence. He decided to wreck the car that I was driving him to work in. So there was quite an elaborate plan, actually. He would pick me up from work, and then um, I would drive him to work, and then I would go home with the baby after he had spent while I was working with the baby. And I guess he picked out a bridge embankment on what was in Boston then called the Southeast Expressway, which is a highway that literally runs through the city of Boston. And it was rush hour. And um, normally uh, he would drive this portion, but he asked me to drive that day, so I did. And he asked me if I was ready for us all to die together because the heating bill was late. And when I I asked him, I tried to de-escalate it by distracting the topic from we're going to die together to what well, is the bill late? Isn't there money? And I asked, how much money is in the bank? And he said there were thousands of dollars in the bank and a $60 heating bill didn't get paid. So, but I didn't have any control over the finances. So again, that's sort of part of how it goes. Anyway, he grabbed the steering wheel in the car, and then I tried to pull it back from him, and then he pulled up on the emergency brake. And we were going, this all began at 65 miles an hour. And just, I'm telling you, there are angels kept us. I can remember the car spinning and cars going by me in the opposite direction while I was in the middle. And I wound up on the shoulder facing the wrong direction, stopped. And how he didn't get hit, I, you know, it was just the angels. But the point is that I said whatever he wanted to hear at that point to keep him from trying again. I just said, I'm so sorry. We'll fix this. I'll just get you to work and everything will be okay. And and I just worked the car around and got back on the road to the next exit and took him to his job. And as he got out of the car, Jay, I looked at him and I myself, I will never voluntarily be in presence again. Never have been. I went to the community center, something called the Dorchester House. And I'll tell you, that's one thing that I would just say. If you're in a domestic violence situation, reach out to your community because there are people and agencies in almost every community who have wisdom that you could dream of. Never dreamt that there were so many systems in place to help domestic violence victims. But they did. They helped me. And there were a lot of events afterwards. There were a total of 51 court hearings, including 
this, violations of the restraining order, custody, visitation, before it was all over. The divorce was over, and I was allowed to come back to Virginia. And in in this time, I learned something that I use to this day, and that is that the police officers who helped me in that time did not come in the package that I ever would have expected. The first police officer who helped me when the restraining order was not properly served was a sergeant supervisor who was five foot two and all of about a hundred pounds. He was intelligent, a great leader. Every cop looked up to him, Trent Holland. And I'll tell you, he navigated me through so many challenging experiences just by great guidance. He cared about this citizen, this little child dad. Another another evidence of that is one time the father came and and actually broke into the house when I was there with the child and he and I wound up rolling around on the front porch as he tried to take the child away to try to kidnap the child. He didn't have any rights at all at that time. He never did have custody. But the cop, I had called the police, and he had hung up the phone. But that didn't stop the process. Apparently, that was a big red flag to the police department. And they sent a cop who was a big boy. He was, um, he, he probably weighed 350 pounds. He never would have been in the U.S. military. But he was in the Boston Police Department out of and I want you to know that man flew up those five stairs in one leap, grabbed the father in with one arm and threw him off of me and and saved our lives, essentially. And I have to say, you never would have expected it from a guy that big. He was he was full of strength and courage and Knew exactly how to take care of the situation, save us. That's one of the things that you you brought up that is so crucial, and this is a recurring theme I have on the show. One of the reasons why I do the show is because we have become so inundated with stereotypes about police that are perpetuated by Hollywood. When I say Hollywood, I mean news, television, movies, and, and social media also. And quite often, it's not like you said. It's not the package you would expect. This is the one that's going to save your life. And the, the cops I worked with were all shapes, sizes, colors, sexual orientation, religion, and absolutely none of us cared. We were talking with Meriwether Bell, or Meriwether Ball, rather. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. This is Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. I promise you, we'll be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Are you buried in credit card debt or student loan debt? 
Learn how to reduce your debt to a fraction of what you owe. Call now for free advice. 800-709-4389. 800-709-4389. That's 800-709-4389. Back to our conversation with Meriwether Ball. And get more details about her. She is a historian. She's a writer. She's a Navy veteran. Check out corestories.com, uh, Marine Corps, C-O-R-P-S, stories.com, and also her website, which is meriwetherball.com. Meriwether, you're talking about the domestic violence situation you lived with for, for quite a while and the murder-suicide attempt. Before we went the break, you talked about the different police that helped you, the different agencies that helped you along the way and I can just tell you from my own experience one of the most difficult and most frustrating and powerless feelings I ever had as a police officer was when you're dealing with repeat domestic violence and you cannot get the victim to to do something about it and unfortunately there were times where you could see it coming you couldn't do anything about it the way the laws were at the time or you locked it, the perpetrator up, they'd be released two days later back home, they, they wouldn't press charges, and and they wound up being killed by them. And it yeah. happens so often. And I'm a father of two daughters. I have four sisters. Uh, you know, my dad was career Navy, so he was gone a lot. I was raised by my mom. I have this fear inside of me that mm. you could say it's irrational, you could say whatever you want, but it's fear nonetheless that the same thing could happen to my daughters. You know, when I, as a, as a grown man, as a retired police and, and kind of a big guy, try to tell people about these things, they don't hear from me. But when someone like you has been through this and you say, what are the things to look out for? What are the warning signs that people who are in a relationship now that, man, they got questions, they're just not sure. What do they need to look out for? Well, one of the main problems, one of the, the first signs is is control and and in relationships where it's heavily invested like a marriage or people who are living together are finances if one of the partners wants to take over the finances take care of the bills and the partner winds up giving them their entire paycheck every every pay period that's a bad sign because when I did that I I was just trying to cooperate with my husband. There, like I say, I I went into the relationship with so many insecurities, and I I think that first thing, Barry, is that the women in our lives we have to give them confidence. We have to give them confidence. They're growing up, and and even after they've had a setback or made a mistake, because it's that insecurity that violent partners play on. And the woman feels so trapped. In my case, I'm, I'm a woman, but it happens to men all the yeah, time, too. It does. I, don't let me get that wrong. Um, but it, the, the thing is that I can remember that my husband would say, you know, no one else will have you if they knew this about you. If they knew that you were recovering alcoholic or so promiscuous when you were drinking, no one else would want you. Well, I believe that. Yeah. And so I... I felt grateful to to him. Well, that's baloney. (laughs) But the point is that my insecurities allowed me to believe it. The way I got out of it was, when that happened, I I had this child. And this often 
is something that fuels partners too, is that when it's not just about you, it's about a completely helpless individual, like a pet or a child, you find resources you wouldn't find otherwise. In my case, I called my Uncle Dave, and he was a retired Marine. He, was, he had been a fighter pilot, and he was a, he was a White House counsel under Reagan and Ford, and he was a superstar. But in his retirement, he was very overfed and well-upholstered and a little bored. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that he could tell me what to do, and that's all I wanted was just one person to say, this is what you do. But he sort of took up my cause. You know, he was out in San Diego, and he would call every single day and say, what are we doing today? How are we getting out of this? How are we negotiating? But I can remember to this day things he said, and and one thing he said was very powerful, and I think it's very true. He said, Mary, don't you see that if he wanted to kill you, you'd be dead? He doesn't want to kill you. He wants you to be afraid he's going to kill you. He wants you to live in fear of him. This is, this is, he's been off on this. And that's how he controlled you is with fear. Exactly. And, and that was like light dawning on me that, that every time I would cry in a courtroom or start speaking whenever I had to pass him in the courthouse, he would get this smirk on his face and I never connected the two. There was such pleasure in this suffering for him. And as recently, I mean, that divorce was 23 years ago. Now, I moved to Virginia 17 years ago. Recently is three years ago. He's down here trying to to look for me. Even though it's all these years ago, he's 20 plus years ago, now he's mm-hmm. he's back trying to stalk you for what we would call it, and his mind is something different. Well, it's not, there was never any, I mean, he's been here many times. And that's another thing I would say, is even when you get rid of some of these people, they don't ever let go. And you have to sort of have, not a 24-hour-a-day thought of it, but sort of a plan. And I do. The first thing I have is confidence, is I, I wouldn't tolerate any of the things that he did to me back then now. And I also know the capacity of the police department. I don't, I don't really have any idea about how to run a police department or what's involved in being a police officer, but I do know that if I tell a police officer that my ex-husband is standing outside my front door or he's down at the corner of my block, they know. They know what to do. And uh, I have had so many events interrupted by the Portsmouth Police Department here. And and like I say, strange in strange packages, a very tall I'll never forget her. I wrote a letter to the captain of the the department about her. Very tall black woman who was so spoken. She really protected me from him when um she came and knocked on my door and she said, Do you know the man standing behind me? <laughs> and he there was my husband from Massachusetts. And that's what said a neighbor had called. I didn't even know that he was sitting outside, but a neighbor had known my story there in Portsmouth, and she called the police. Thank goodness. He had been sitting out there. Yeah. So what I'm just trying to say is I completely trust the police officers. I, I completely trust their their judgment and their knowledge on domestic violence, but it is a situation where 
you have to try and you have to believe that you're going to get out of this. You know somebody who can help you find a safe way out? Ask them for help. There's a lot of resources available. I do remember early in my police career, there, there was an incident in Torrington, Connecticut involving a horrible domestic violence situation that changed the way we did and handled and approached domestic violence calls in in Maryland and across the United States. And unfortunately, Mm. what it took at that time was, and this is before your incident, was the victim and victim's family suing the police department and and winning for them going to the, well, I didn't see it, so you get a warrant, blah, blah, blah. Things changed. As soon as we got to the point where we thought there was any kind of threat for potential violence if we left the rule of thumb was this mary mother if i was at a call for domestic violence or or family disturbance or what it might be and if i felt and it's it's as nondescript as that if i felt that when i left there was a chance that one of the people there could inflict or would inflict a bodily harm on someone else there it was my obligation to haul them away and take them to jail the courts could do what they would that was not my responsibility. My responsibility is to make sure they were safe. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, never fear. You can listen to them online as a podcast. Just go to our website, letradioshow.com where you'll find all the podcast episodes and much more. That's letradioshow.com. We're going to take a short break and turn our conversation with Meriwether Bell. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest price prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603. 800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Meriwether Ball. I keep calling her Bell. I don't know why. <laughs> so for the, those who are listening and go, what a jerk. Look, I do stupid things all day, every day. My <laughs> wife will tell you. What? She looks at me sometimes. She doesn't say anything. We've been married like 20 years. Meriwether, she'll look at me and go, and i like, I know. I know. I just, I, I don't know why I did it. Um, the thing that's really fascinating about meeting you, Meriwether, is I have met so many people in my police career and so many cops are going to be shaking their head, yeah, that are, are have gone through horrific crimes, have gone through horrible cases of domestic violence, and there is a propensity in our country for a lot of people to say, yeah, it's just a husband and wife spat. 
and then they want to downplay it. I'm going to tell you, some of the worst calls as a cop, and every cop will tell you this, the absolute worst calls you can go to are domestic violence calls because it can go from being calm to a life and death situation for everyone there in just seconds. Yes. And we've had people shot and killed. We've had, just recently, we've had cops ambushed with high-powered rifles on domestic violence calls as they're getting out of their police car. We would do things like park a couple doors down. And people are like, why are you doing that? Because if you pulled right up in front of the house where the call was, and if it was going bad and they were ambushing you, you were a perfect target. So we would park our car with the lights off a little further down and then walk to the house. Yeah, That's how bad these situations are. So I don't want anyone to misconstrue that I think they're not dangerous. They're highly dangerous. And the fact that you're alive to tell your story is a, a testament to you. And it's a testament to a higher power or whatever terminology people want to use, that you're still here. Well, what you have, you bring up a very good point. And one statistic is that when a, a victim seeks help from law enforcement, there is a very high chance that if they're going to be killed, they're going to be killed in that first 72 hours. Yeah. And that is because the threat of law enforcement is so terrible to these predators that they would rather die than than walk away or have their partner walk away. Um, and that's how it gets, it, it becomes a, it becomes a, a, it's like laying down a gauntlet. When I went through this event, what happened at the Dorchester house, now I'll be careful about how I tell the story because I don't want to jeopardize it, but they had a plan for domestic violence victims. They shuffled me and my child away. And I mean, there was a system in place, and this is 1996. There was a system in place where they, it was sort of an underground thing. Right. They, through a series of law enforcement and other people, in my case, it were veterans and law enforcement officers and agencies, they moved me from one place to another place to another place to another place, to another, but there was not one person who took us any distance, any long distance. They kept switching so that if we were being followed, there would be no way that they could keep, stay on it very long. But it's a system. It's a system that's in place. And that, having that 72 hours away safe, I think is what saved my life. And I don't know the name of that, but I know that they have these, this sort of underground safety system in most cities. Yeah, I, I do and, recall, and, and I don't know the specifics, but I recall domestic violence situations, and I, I believe the organization was House of Ruth. And oftentimes, as police, we would drop the victim off with someone from House of Ruth and, and not even know where they took them. Exactly. And exactly. it wasn't that they didn't trust us, it was about so many horrible things that happened with the perpetrators that it was a protective measure for the abuse and uh, so that nothing would escalate. And they were moved quite often. So they'd have, yes. a, they'd have an office front for House of Ruth, but where the people stayed, I couldn't even tell you. No. And, and this is critical because these predators are crafty people and they will do anything to get their control back. 
And you are so right. I'll tell you, though, when we got back after those few days and the restraining order was sitting in the mailbox, and I knew by then, by all the education I had had in those couple of days, um, that that was a very bad thing because he hadn't been served. So I straight down to 11, and that's where I met this police officer. And he took the child and I into this room. It was a locker for the police officers off of the the main part of the police department off the lobby. And I was hysterical. I'll tell you the truth. I just paced with that child in my arms for three hours until they could find the father and serve him. And, um, of course, he evaded service. I mean, it's a cat and mouse game. So anyway, later in court, the that officer told this, this mother was so hysterical. She didn't even know the comings and goings in that room. And he said that he had told the other police officers who were aware of me in there with holding this baby in my arms like I wouldn't let him go. He said that's the look and behavior of someone who is afraid for her life. He was trying to point out that when a woman is hysterical on a call, when they're shaking, when they're crying, when they can't concentrate or pay attention or answer questions, something terrible is going on there. And that's one of the things we had to, to, to cue off of, and because it, oftentimes they, they, they weren't allowed to say what was really happening. You had to watch your body language. Before we run out of time, I want to f- switch gears a little bit, because I, I believe a lot of the magic and the inspiration from, from people like you is that, wh- yeah. how did you get to where you're at today? Yeah. You're doing these yeah. fantastic so, things. It was really that, that uncle. It was any woman who or any victim who gets away has somebody who navigates them. And I listened to him, and he said, you've got to do something with your life where you start to like yourself. And that's what happened. First of all, I got through the divorce. That was a big achievement. I got the child safe. Big achievement. And as these things start racking up, I start to see my value. Then the child had some health issues, and I, I faced those down. Then he graduated early. And then he graduated from university. And then I went back to school. So essentially what it amounts to, Jay, is that I had to walk away that insecure woman was and make myself into all the things that I wanted to be. One thing I found was I loved these Marines who were nobodies but became great heroes and essentially they inspired me through all of this. When I meet, like I say, I remember meeting a guy who was pumping my gas in Fitchburg, Massachusetts because they pumped gas there at the time and it, it turned out that he was a Navy Cross recipient Navy Cross, and yeah. here he was pumping my gas, yeah. and I thought, my heavens! It'd be so, it'd be so easy to just ignore someone like in that position and not exactly. realize. And and the same and thing scared. goes for you. It, it'd be so easy to stereotype, say, "What does she know about my situation?" We we can all take inspiration from so many different people. So you have really gotten into writing. You've written books. You have a blog. Tell us about the books. So the books I've written, one of them actually was about childhood trauma, because one of the things I've done is a volunteer work as a court-appointed special advocate for children, and that sort of helped heal me, too, in the years that I was raising my son. But aside from that, my Marine Corps writings are these many years writing about Marine Corps stories and going on special assignments to great places all over the world where Marines are doing 
very cool things, like as Marine security guards or as um, different roles down at Guantanamo Bay. And then these books about Marines and their histories of how they came to uh, receive these top-tier medals, the top medals in Marine Corps history, and sort of their upbringing, their background. And again, it's just the same old thing. You know, they're just ordinary people from small towns. Doing extraordinary things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where can people get uh, more information about their books and you and your blog? So go to meriwetherball.com or go to Amazon and look for Meriwetherball or go to corestories.com and be inspired. Meriwether, thanks so very much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Thanks so very much for telling your story. It's very much appreciated. It's my honor. Thank you so much, Jay. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. If you want to be a guest on a Law Enforcement Today show, just go to our website and contact me through there. Our website is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.